Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. When 2017 started, there were a couple of things in the capital markets that seemed pretty clear. One of them was the direction of the U.S. dollar. Yes, it was supposed to strengthen, Paul. It was supposed to strengthen. We are now six months into the year, and uh, the, the direction hasn't exactly on where everyone thought it was. Why is that? And where is it going to go next? To talk about that, we are joined today on the phone from the UK by Richard Benson, who is co-head of Portfolio Investments at Millennium Global. He focuses on the currency markets. Richard, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Good. Thanks very much. Nice to speak with you. So, Richard, uh, just as Paul alluded to in the opening, why did the dollar fail to live up to expectations in the first six months? Two principal reasons. Uh, one your side of the pond and one our side of the pond. <laughs> First and foremost, uh, we entered the year with very strong expectations for the dollar um, based upon and predicated on the delivery of comprehensive uh, fiscal expansion and tax reform uh, by the new administration in the U.S. Uh, not only has that failed to be delivered, but the administration has carried with it a greater burden uh, of the lack of uh, delivery on any policy front. So uh, the, the expectations were strong into the year, and now the expectations have turned extremely negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much a political and lack of uh, fiscal uh, expansion uh, dragging back uh, the dollar and the U.S. side of the equation. But probably uh, the more overwhelming factor has actually been the outperformance of the Eurozone on a cyclical basis, and not the U.K., of course, an entirely different situation, but the, the European uh, single currency zone, uh, has performed extremely strong, mostly extremely strong on a relative basis. The absolute numbers are perhaps not that euphoric, but you know, in terms of currencies, it's always about expectations and performing those where we have come from. Uh, the Eurozone's recovery looks entrenched and looks robust, um, but things aren't quite so simple because the ECB's mandate is not growth and it is inflation, and actually inflation remains very benign in the Eurozone. Uh, so we've had a strong support for the Eurozone. We've had the clearing of political clouds around the French elections vis-à-vis and compare that to the U.S. where expectations were high. They haven't been delivered, and we have significant political clouds over the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting because now you have a situation where the ECB has been, you know, look, the ECB has been operating under this this mandate from Mario Draghi, which was basically summed up in his whatever-it-takes speech you know, like you said, their their mandate is not growth. It is inflation. But growth is doing well. Uh, are, are they in a position where they really can declare victory and kind of start moving to remove these, uh, remove the supports? I don't think they'll declare victory. They are central bankers. They're naturally <laughs> nervous and naturally backward looking. Um, but they're certainly, you know, we just look at the date. Today is 2017. The whatever it takes speech within 2012. That was over five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, in that period of time, uh, the ability for the Eurozone to self-mend has certainly been presented to it. Uh, and the growth directory and the uh, inflationary impulse or the disinflationary impulse 
really compounded by uh, the collapse in the oil price are abating somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we cast those things into the mix and you have um, reduced political risk premium, re reduced disinflationary impulse pulse, and a strong easing uh, by the central bank, which is filtering through. Uh, were the ECB setting policy for uh, the strongest members, they would have hiked rates many months ago. Uh, the problem is they're setting rates for the aggregate. The aggregate drank down by poor performers, and the weakest of those performers really being Italy. And next year, uh, we have political clouds um, in Italy, uh, a likely general election in the spring of next year. And I suspect the ECB will want to maintain the ability to continue quantitative easing uh, into and around those dates to provide stability to those bond markets. Um, in particular, having an Italian governor of the ECB, of the ECB uh, adds to the importance of the Italian dimension. How, have, is the sort of strength of the global economy, especially versus, you know, the U.S., which you know has continued to be somewhat lackluster, surprised um, you at all in the first six months? It's certainly, the strength of the European economy has surprised to the upside. Uh, actually, if you think about the global basis, China's certainly been slowing. And a lot of the forward yeah, indicators for China uh, show uh, a degree of policy-induced slowing. Um, but growth is very broad and is very global, uh, despite these headwinds that have been cast um, over us. Uh, in a world of very low real yields, this is an ability for them uh, to deliver uh, and move forward. You know, it's funny. It seems like... You know, you mentioned the whole idea of the upside surprise. It seems like, and, and again, this is not a, a political comment, really, but it's just, it seems like both the markets and the administration, there was a lot of over-promising there. I mean, even if they had gotten these policies that they had talked about passed, it would have taken longer for them to really have a material effect on the economy. And it seems like everybody, everyone really should have been tamping down their expectations for how soon these things were going to bear fruit, even assuming that they got done as soon as they did. They have not gotten it done as soon as they had expected. So now you kind of exacerbate that, that problem of expectations. Yeah, I mean, I think you need to look at different asset classes. Actually, um, you know, foreign exchange uh, raised the large doubts uh, in the early date of January with regard to the new administration, and it's continued to raise those with regard to the dollar. The bond market... Uh, really it took until March before it really raised doubts as to the ability of the administration to deliver mm -hmm. and still has those in it now. Yeah, I'm sure we, we must come at some point to talk about the Fed. Uh, but when we think about the second quarter of the year, then really we need to steal a couple of weeks from the first quarter. And the extraordinary market ramifications of the Fed tightening in March, which have become self-feeding to be reasons for more Fed tightening now. A quite extraordinary situation, which is very much a departure of the entirety of the last uh, eight years since the global financial crisis. Right. Yeah. No, we do want to talk about the Fed. I'm glad you got us into that. Let's. But let's take a quick break. We have to take a break, and we will come back on the other side, and we will get to the real heart of the matter: the Federal Reserve. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Need to get your news fix? Look for WSJ on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and the Amazon Echo, The Wall Street Journal. 
Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in New York City talking to Richard Benson on the phone from the UK, who is co-head of Portfolio Investments at Millennium Global. And, and Richard, you got to it. You, t- you mentioned the Fed, and, and that's what we want to talk about. I mean, the, the, the Fed here is in a sort of interesting position. They've been begging for years for... The, the federal government to kind of take over, the, take the baton in terms of directing the economy, thought they were going to get it. I mean, economic growth here looks okay. It hasn't really accelerated anywhere. The, the Fed wants to normalize policy, and they thought they were going to get a lot of support to do that, and they're pushing ahead with that. But are they really... It seems almost insane to ask if the Fed is moving too fast, but I mean, you can argue that the Fed is moving too fast. It's hugely focused on financial conditions. Yeah. Um, a phrase that really sums up the level of equity markets. Financial assets are extremely rich. Um, what has surprised the Fed since March is that when they raised interest rates in mid-March, with a very short lead time, and the market not pricing it really until a week or so beforehand, they actually eased financial conditions. That demonstrated to them quite how easy monetary policy was set in this world of ample liquidity. And morphing out of that to global central banks at the ECB's conference at Sintra uh, last week, whereby central banks are now suggesting they're prepared to start to normalize policy in an environment of uh, disinflationary impulse because they want to be forward-looking to tighten financial conditions. Uh, throughout the entirety of the uh, recovery post-09, the only hurdle to Fed policy or certainly Fed timing was the fear of a tightening of financial conditions. That was what scared the world in the taper tantrum of 2013. That is a colossal departure from the modus operandi they were operating in until March of this year. And I think it's a very interesting environment uh, for macro markets uh, for the second half of the year, and especially currency markets, because there it's a relative uh, play between global central banks, not an absolute play. So, th- I mean, that's interesting. It sounds like you're expecting the Fed to perhaps tighten again in the second half. And you've seen a lot of sort of like, you, you know, in the in the Fed fund futures market and stuff like that. You've seen investors tamping down their expectations for another rate hike this year based on the inflation data. Are you do you do you expect the Fed to hike again in the second half? Yeah, I definitely expect the Fed to at least hike once in the second half. Uh, December really being a base case, because not only is hiking of rates on the Fed agenda, but slowing um, uh, the balance sheet expansion bond purchases, winding down that very slowly and gradually, came onto the agenda in the second quarter. And I think the Fed will be uh, telegraphing that in September. If uh, financial conditions, Mm -hmm. i.e. equity markets, are at their high, that is not priced in markets. And I fear that that may cause some indigestion uh, along the way. Um, But I do note that many of these measures of uh, global financial assets or U.S. financial assets are extremely rich. Uh, the flow of funds into risk parity as a concept over the last three to five years has been absolutely enormous. Um, so I think there is a real danger that the Fed isn't able to slowly deflate an asset bubble, uh, but only pricks it. And we know what happens if you prick a balloon. Does that bode well for the dollar in the second half? Or are, are you, I mean, is that a bearish sort of concern? I, I think the environment for the dollar for the second half is slightly negative in a benign way, uh, providing the eurozone holds up and we move towards the cycle. 
but with et- episodic surges of strength as we price in, in that environment, the better ability for the Fed to deliver. We've seen that in the last week or so, uh, the dollar on a slightly better footing. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, I think it's very hard for a sustainable dollar recovery in a world of underdelivery by the political forces in the U.S., a world where if there is dollar strength, there is pushback from the administration clearly uh, endorsing mm-hmm. the strong dollar policy. Uh, there is certainly a more than a tacit benign neglect towards that by the administration because of the feedback loop of any dollar strength. And the ECB is just on its path to normalization. That is a new, very powerful dynamic for a large currency pair, which is cheap. The euro to the dollar is over 10% cheap on a fair value metric. So why can't we appreciate back towards the mid-120s? That would certainly change the dynamic for many uh, in terms of their investment outlooks. And just, you know, we've, the, WS, I mean, the Wall Street Journal has been reporting about the balance sheet and the Fed, you know, looking to move on that in September, unwinding, you know, it's what, $4.5 trillion balance sheet. What impact does that, should that have on the dollar? So the Fed would like to think none. <laughs> um, I think it's very hard to know until it actually occurs. Okay. Uh, I think the direct mechanical impact, the, the speed of the wind down certainly has been discussed currently is extremely slow and is unlikely to affect things. But the second-order effect, what does it mean for global fixed income? What does it mean for the Treasury market? Is there a sort of uh, flow of funds change which causes a mini taper tantrum? If it causes a large change to U.S. fixed income, to global fixed income, to global risk assets, then there will be feedback effects for the dollar. Richard Benson is co-head of Portfolio Investments at Millennium Global, focuses on the currency markets. Richard, thanks for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. And everyone, as always, thank you for listening. We really appreciate that, and we'll talk to you soon. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.